My name's Pastor Ellis, for those of you who, who don't know me. And uh, I want d- did anyone get April fooled yesterday? Just the honesty here. Yeah, there's, there's forgiveness in, the, in this place. It's all right. We'll, 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 we'll let you have it. You know, a- April Fool's jokes, they, they tend to work because the people who are the butt of the joke are ignorant of some fact that, uh, that everyone else is in on. Like, that, that's, that's how it works, basically. And there's a really uh, famous April Fool's joke from the rugby team I used to play for at the University of Oxford. Um, and it involves a bunch of Australians who were on the team, and they were ignorant of something about uh, the United Kingdom. And, and actually, you're Americans, so you're probably ignorant of it too. And, uh, and so I'm probably going to have to fill you in. To, okay, there you go. So here's, here's the thing, right? It's, it can be confusing sometimes, this whole like England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, United Kingdom, British Isles, like what on earth are they talking about? Is this a foreign language or something? And um, so I'm going to try and explain it to you. I'll be honest, I had to look it up. So even, even I didn't, I, I was a little bit ignorant. Um, in international law, there's only one sovereign state, and it is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And what that means, basically, is that y- you can move between England and Wales and Scotland, and you don't have to show ID or a passport. It's just, just free travel. But the Australian rugby players who were studying at Oxford didn't know this. And they had an, uh, a road game. They were traveling to Cardiff in Wales. And the normal way that you get to Cardiff in Wales is you go across a toll bridge. And as they're approaching this toll bridge, the English players decided to uh, use this ignorance of the Aussies to their advantage. So they, they turn to them. They're coming up to the toll booths. They see them in the distance. And they turn to them and say, so, guys, you, you did remember to bring your passports, right? And the Aussies are like, we didn't, we didn't know we needed passports, and the English players are like, well, of course you need passports. We're going to a different country. This is Wales. And the Aussies, were like, they're starting to sweat. They're worried there's a big game coming up, University of Cardiff. And what are we going to do? How are we going to get around this? So the English players say, well, there's only one thing for it. They tell the bus driver to pull over on the side of the road. They get the Aussies out of the bus. They open up the underneath of the bus and they throw the Aussies in underneath, <laughs> close it down and drive off. You know, to be ignorant is to be outwitted. Am I right? To be ignorant is to be outwitted. We are in the midst of a sermon series through the season of Lent called Spiritual Warfare. We've been looking at uh, giving you guys the knowledge and the tools that you need to have to know what it means to be in the midst of this spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. And if you're new with us today, I'm really excited that you've joined us. If you haven't been here in a month, I'm excited that you're back with us. But there are some things, some groundwork that we laid down in the first few weeks of this series, which are important concepts, which need to be there in order for today to make sense. So I'm going to summarize them quickly, but if you haven't heard them, please go back, download the app on your, on your phones, or go to the website and listen to the earlier sermons from this series to really understand what these concepts are. Three main concepts that we introduced in the first part of this series. The first is that the Bible tells us we have a real spiritual enemy. He is alive, and his name is Satan or the devil, and he is at work seeking to steal, kill, and destroy in this world. The second big concept that we introduced is that Jesus has won the decisive victory over the enemy on the cross, but the battle is still raging. The war has been won, but the battle is ongoing, and as believers, we find ourselves in the midst of this battle. And the third key concept that we introduced is that Jesus has given his followers his authority 
such that they can fight this battle, that they can command the enemy to go and they can take the ground that rightfully belongs to Jesus in this world. Those are the three concepts and they're kind of fundamental to everything that we're going to hear, that we're going to talk about today. And in these last three weeks of the series, we've been applying these concepts to our lives as believers. Last week, Pastor Larry spoke about the armor of God. Paul wrote about that in Ephesians. I'm going to look at some more of what Paul writes about in the New Testament. And one, one verse that's kind of formational for what you're going to hear today is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul is writing here and he's talking to the church in Corinth about why he's chosen to forgive certain people for what they've done. So he says, I've chosen to forgive them so that, it's going to come on the screen. I know it will. It's there. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. That screen's broken. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul says that to be ignorant of Satan's designs, Satan's schemes is another way to understand that, Satan's methods, is to be outwitted by Satan. Just like those Australian rugby players were ignorant of the English players' schemes and they were outwitted by them, if we are ignorant of Satan's designs, Satan's schemes, Satan's methods, then we can be outwitted by him. And our desire for you is that you would not be outwitted, that we would not be outwitted by the enemy, that we would not be ignorant of the way that he is at work, the way that he is seeking to deceive us, the way he is seeking to attack us and outwit us. And so the question I want to ask this morning is how do we remove this ignorance that we have? And the answer is recon or recce, as we say in England. Reconnaissance work. Reconnaissance work is something done in warfare by a a trained team that is sent behind enemy lines on a scouting mission to determine what are the tactics of the enemy, what are their schemes, what are the ways that they work. And recon is, is scary work in reality. You're putting yourself in harm's way. You're putting yourself in the camp of the enemy. And this morning as we do some recon, you may find yourself a little afraid about some of the things that we're talking about. But I want to remind us once again, Jesus has won the decisive victory. The war is over. The battle may still be raging, but the war, the outcome has been decided. And he has empowered us as his followers to stand firm in the name of Jesus and command the enemy to go. And so if, as we're talking this morning, you feel afraid, that's not God that's doing that. Okay? You can take the name of Jesus and you can command the enemy to go right here in this service this morning. So recon is what we're going to do. And there are two areas that I think we need to do some reconnaissance work in. The first of those is to determine what sort of influence is the enemy seeking to gain over us as believers? What sort of influence is he seeking to gain? And the second is what are his schemes, his methods, his designs to gain that influence? And in order to help us understand this, I want to introduce a metaphor to you, an illustration. And I believe I can find this in the scripture and I'll show you where it comes from in a second. But I want to introduce it first because I think it's helpful to do it this way around. And the image is my house. Now, technically, it's not my house. I rent it. So the house belongs to my landlord. My landlord owns the house. But I live in it with my family. And because I live in it, I have the ability to open up the door of my house and welcome visitors into my house. 
And one of the visitors that we've chosen to welcome into our house is our dog. Now, our dog in the last 24 hours has had some gastrointestinal issues. And I woke up this morning, opened my bedroom door, stepped outside, and I smelt something. And let me tell you, it didn't smell good. I went downstairs, and in the darkness, the the light of dawn, I could see a big mess all over the floor. And I thought, you know, it's okay, we'll just clear it up, we'll mop the floor, we'll get on with it. But then I realized something else had happened. We have a robotic vacuum cleaner that goes off every night at midnight. So at 6.30 this morning, I found myself with a toothpick and a baby wipe trying to clean out the robotic vacuum cleaner from where everything had got into it. Guys, if you're looking for a dog, we have one for sale. How much? (laughs) Priceless. In the same way, I believe our lives as believers are like my house. Our lives as believers, we are owned by God. We do not own ourselves. God owns us. But we have the ability in our lives to open up the door and welcome visitors in, just like I welcome my dog in. And those visitors have the ability to wreak havoc in our lives, like my dog and my robotic vacuum cleaner wreaked havoc this morning. Where do I see this in Scripture? Well, there's a number of New Testament passages that talk about the influence that Satan can have over believers. And there's one that I think is important for us to study. And I'd love you to turn there this morning if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps on your phone. Ephesians 4, 26 is where we're going to be. So open up your Bibles. We're going to look at two verses here. And I think they help us to understand why this house metaphor is true. Ephesians 4:26 and 27. Let me read them to you this morning. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now what's interesting here is Paul starts by saying be angry. You can go and think about what he means there later, but that tells us that anger is not the problem says, be angry and do not sin. Why should we not sin? I believe Paul tells us that if we sin, we give an opportunity to the devil. That's what he's saying in these verses. When we sin, we give an opportunity to the devil. That word for opportunity is the Greek word topos, and it's a pictorial word. It's a climbing metaphor. It speaks of a foothold. I don't know if any of you are climbers or you know someone who's a climber, but a foothold is where you Put your foot to gain purchase and leverage in order to push yourself up the face that you are seeking to climb. When we sin, Paul says, we give the devil a foothold, a place for him to put his foot and exert his pressure and influence on our lives. Now, what's interesting as well about this word topos is it's used throughout the New Testament to refer to an inhabitable space or a place. When Jesus was born, Scripture says there was no room for him in the inn. That's that word topos. And Jesus actually uses this word to refer to where evil spirits can inhabit. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 12. He says, 
the, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places. That's that word topos, seeking rest, but finds none. I believe what Paul is telling us here is that when we sin, we give the devil a topos, a place in our lives. In that metaphor of the house, it's like we open the door and we say, come on in. I've got a place for you right here. Now, I want to be clear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that Satan can own us as believers. Satan cannot own you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Just like I don't own my house. My landlord owns my house. Where do I see that in the scriptures? Well, Paul writes that as believers, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's in Colossians 1. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. As believers, we are owned by God. We can never be owned by the devil. We can never be snatched out of God's grasp. We are his. But we can open up a door, like I can do in my home, and welcome a visitor in who can wreak havoc and exert influence in our lives. And so the question is, the second area of recon we want to do, what are those doors that we can open? What are the schemes, the designs, the methods of the enemy that he would seek to use to gain access to our lives? And I want to talk about two this morning. I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but they are two very prominent ones that I see in the New Testament. And the first of those we've already been looking at, it is sin. In that Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 verse, let me read it again. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity, topos, foothold, place to the devil. Paul says that when we sin, we give the devil a place in our lives, a foothold in our lives. Now, we all sin all of the time, right? That's something that's true whether you believe in Jesus or whether you don't. Until Jesus comes again, sin will continue to be present in our lives. Now, does that therefore mean that every time you sin, Satan or one of his uh, workers is coming in and getting that foothold and gaining it? Not necessarily, I don't believe. Okay, in the same way that when I open up the door to my home, it is upon the visitor as to whether they choose to come in into the place that I have given them. And so what does that mean? What What am I talking about here? Well, Some sins that we commit become patterns of behavior, become habits, habitual sins. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's uh, substance abuse. Maybe it's uh, patterns of behavior which result in greater anxiety. There are some things that we do that become patterns. And I believe when we do these things like a pattern again and again and again, it becomes a habit. We create a greater and greater foothold, a bigger place in which the enemy can exert his influence. And we're so thankful at Chapel Hill to have incredible recovery ministries for people who are dealing with things like this, for Celebrate Recovery on Thursday nights, for step studies that go on throughout the week, for our lay counseling ministry. 
We're thankful for all of those things. And for many people, those are the tools that they need in order to gain the freedom that Jesus has won for them. But for some people, they're not enough. For some people, the foothold they've given to the enemy is too strong. And in places like that, I have to question whether what needs to happen is for someone to come, stand alongside them, take authority in the name of Jesus, and command the enemy to flee from their life. Command the enemy to go. Now, how do we know the difference between one and the other? How do we know when it's the enemy? How do we know when it's just us? I don't think there's a hard and fast rule in the scripture. I don't think there's a place where we can point to and go, this is when it is. But I have to wonder in some of those instances when people are trapped, when they're unable to get free, despite trying accountability and recovery and counseling, I have to wonder whether Satan has such a strong foothold that it needs to be someone who commands him in the name of Jesus to go in order for that person to be free. That's the first scheme I believe we see clearly in the New Testament. The second one, I want us to look at is found not in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but in Paul's ministry to the Ephesians. And that's recorded in Acts chapter 19. So if you got your Bibles out, turn to Acts 19, if you can. And we're going to be looking at verses, again, they'll be on the screens if you don't have your Bibles. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 18 and 19 of Acts 19. Let me give you some background here. Paul, Acts 19 records, has been in Ephesus uh, he, he was in Ephesus for two years. And during this time, he ministered to many, many people, many of whom were um, encountering the influence in their lives of evil spirits. And it becomes clear that one of the things that was going on in Ephesus at that time was the practice of what's called in this chapter, magic arts. And there's a story that Acts 19 tells about a traveling group of Jewish exorcists who come into the town and they try to cast an evil spirit out of a person, but they don't have the authority of Jesus to do this. And so they try to cast this spirit out, but the spirit ends up overpowering seven men and they flee naked. Now, when people hear about this, they become afraid because they recognize that there's this power there that has resulted from their practices. They've given the enemy a place in their lives. And that's when we read this in verse 18, if you want to look down. Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now note, these are believers who are coming and are confessing and divulging their practices. And what are their practices? This is the second scheme that I think we see in, in Scripture in the New Testament clearly. Magic arts, or we might call them today the occult. Okay, these believers on hearing the power of this evil spirit over this man, knowing that they too have been practicing these same things. They come, having already believed, already believing and trusting in Jesus, they come and confess and divulge their practices. And not only that, they come and burn all of their books. And it says the value of those books was 50,000 pieces of silver. Today, that would be $6 million worth of books in this little town. That's an incredible amount of books. 
an incredible sacrifice on the part of these believers. And that tells us how strongly they recognize the power that the enemy has had in their lives. Now, what are these magic arts? Well, I believe that the Old Testament fills it out for us in several places. And one of those places is Deuteronomy 18 where it says, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. So what might these practices be today, the modern equivalents? Well, they would include, and again, this is not exhaustive, they would include things like witchcraft or wicker, palm or tarot reading or psychic reading, Vows or oaths taken to evil spirits or the devil. It would include divination. Part of divination, one aspect of divination is horoscopes. And it would include the calling up of spirits, which is what a Ouija board intends to do. Now, this story of the occult is more personal to me. There's a member of my family in England who trained to be a medium at one point in time. Eventually, she left those practices behind, but when she did, she began to experience severe afflictions, especially at night. She would have out-of-body experiences. She would be visited by evil spirits in her room, and she would wake up being strangled when there was no one else in the room. Now, these became incredibly severe, And fear came upon her in a great way. One day she woke up and she heard the words, burn the books. So she gathered all her books and her paraphernalia. She took it out into the backyard and had a bonfire. And that provided some relief for a time, but the afflictions came back. Eventually, she reached out to a minister and asked that he come and perform an exorcism on her. She thought there must be power in in this Christian stuff, so I'm going to look for it. And he came, and the sad thing was, he never asked her whether she believed and trusted in Jesus. And so he performed an exorcism, and relief came for a period, but then the afflictions came back. Eventually, time went on. She learned to kind of manage and live with it, had a child, and began attending a mom's group where they studied the Bible together. And she came to know Jesus personally through this group, which is amazing. She was transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. But sadly, these afflictions did not end when that happened. They continued. And she shared this with the fellow believers that she had met. And even more sadly, she was shunned by these believers as someone who was crazy, who they didn't want to deal with. Thankfully, there was an elder and his wife in the church who heard about this, who came alongside her and said to her, we have experience in this area. We have prayed for people before who have come out of similar backgrounds. And they took time to minister to her and pray with her over several weeks and months and even years, claiming the authority of Jesus, commanding the enemy to flee. But for this woman, she had to confess and divulge her practices, just like those believers in Acts 19. And there have been many practices over a long period of time that had given many places for the enemy to exert his influence in her life. 
But after a period of time, the great news is that Jesus had his victory in her life, that she is no longer afflicted by these things, that she stands free in Christ. And not only that, but she is enabled to minister this freedom to other people. She understands this and God is using her in amazing ways to set other people free. You know, church, there's power in the name of Jesus over all of the works of the enemy. And we might believe that we're in some Western educated society and that this this Satan thing is all just a bit of a joke, but this is real, even here in the West. And I don't want you to be outwitted by Satan's schemes. We don't want you to be outwitted by Satan's schemes of sin and of the occult. Because you do not belong to him. You belong to Jesus. You have been bought with a price. He has won freedom for you. He's transferred you into his kingdom. But there are doors that we continue to open in our lives through sin, through occult practices. There may be doors that we've left flung open from things that we've done in the past that we need to come and confess like those believers in Acts 19 did. And we need to have someone stand alongside us, take authority in the name of Jesus and command the enemy to go because he will continue to exert whatever influence he can upon us as believers. He is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And we do not want to let that happen because Jesus has won the decisive victory.